let me start us off with maybe a slightly unusual question. I read online, uh, you mentioned somewhere that you love jigsaw puzzles as a form of meditation for you. Now, what's one of your favorite jigsaw puzzles? Is, are there any particularly memorable ones? And what makes for a great jigsaw puzzle? Yeah, so I do, I do love my jigsaw puzzles. And they're, uh, they're sort of like when I do them, I'm not doing something complicated. Like it has a clear yes and no answer, you know, of like that piece goes here or not. It's not work. It's not family. You know, it's sort of uh, fun. I actually do. I have a, there's a, the New York Puzzle Company does a bunch of these New Yorker puzzles. My favorite is like a thousand piece. I've done bigger, but they're, you know, you end up breaking them up basically to sort of smaller puzzles anyway. So I like the thousand pieces and there are covers of New Yorker for many years. And I actually have about mm. 16 odd puzzles hung in my house that I've assembled of thousand pieces. They're all the same size and they go for covers going from like 1940s to sort of, you know, recent couple of years. And I build others and I put them in temporary frames and I haven't done this yet once I've sort of filled the frames, but the intent is to sort of uh, at a certain frequency rotate <laughs> the, the puzzles because it's nice. It's like a good picture and they're quality pieces and they're thick. So yeah, you do form opinions about the puzzles. <laughs> That's amazing. I had no idea that there's that much of a, how do I even call this, like a community, I guess, around puzzling, that people even create puzzles out of New Yorker <laughs> covers that you can then collect. That's amazing. Yeah, it's actually a lot of fun to uh, to get the quality pieces. And then the ones that are like kind of low quality, super thin and all of that, they uh, they start becoming annoying. And, uh, but these ones also have funky shapes. They're like very different. Uh, so anyways, those are my mm. favorites. That's awesome. Well, if anyone listening is into puzzles, now you go, now you know where to go and look uh, for some really, really good puzzles. Beautiful. Apart from puzzling, you are obviously well known as being the founder of Sneak and you've been there for many years. I'm actually really curious how your sort of how a week in the life of GuyPod has changed over the last years, particularly, you know, with the CEO transition. I'm really curious, what's a week in, in your life like right now? And then what was that like at the early stages and how has that transitioned over time as you've learned as the company has grown? Yeah, I mean, life has changed dramatically throughout the stages of Snick Journey. So a little bit for context, Nick is about seven and a half years old. I was the sort of founding CEO. And about three years ago, maybe a bit more, brought on Peter McKay, who was our board member. And I've known for 15 years as our CEO. And I took on this sort of more nebulous sort of president title. Throughout the journey, I've always tried to work myself out of a job. And so at the beginning, you do all the jobs. You, know, you sort of like head of product, head of sales, the salesperson, the marketer, the SE, the, you know, whatever sort of janitor, you know, you do whatever it is that that needs to be done. And I hired a great team and, and sort of set of leaders even somewhat early on, but I, I filled all these different capacities. And then as time went on, you know, as, okay, I hired a salesperson. They were the salesperson. I was partially a salesperson, but I was their SE. And then, you know, hired at some point a head of sales and so supported them. And maybe I was focusing more on marketing et cetera, et cetera, until I remained only the CEO <laughs> on it. And then at some point I had kind of the realization, you know, this is about four and a bit years in, uh, Snick has kind of hit a curve because Snick had a couple of years of really kind of fumbling a bit, getting developer adoption, but not managing to monetize doubts about sort of viability for the company. So that was kind of the first two-ish years. And then we hit an inflection point and things started really kind of going steep up. So this is a good couple of years after that, maybe even two and a half. Uh, where I realized there was some market dynamics and we had, you know, the second product was starting to grow and, and such. And I realized that uh, the company was growing massively quickly. You know, it went from, you know, in the annual increments from 23 people to 84 people to 250 people to 450 people and so on. You know, we're 1,200 people now. And I spent all my time, all my energy just trying to cope with that growth, trying to kind of maintain the culture, hire the right people, kind of grow this just, you know, all my attention. And so, although I think I was doing a decent job, I wasn't doing what I thought I was best at and most loved doing, which was around kind of the product vision and where we're headed and, you know, what should we do next? And so I had an opportunity. So, so that really got me into this mental state because a few things happened in the market at the time, you know, GitHub entered the market, you know, we, we were actually doing pretty well. So we started kind of taking away businesses from other competitors and, and we needed some strategic thinking and I was the right person to do that, but I didn't have time. Uh, and so I sort of spent you know, all my time trying to scale it. And so that to me was a good learning and realization. And I had this opportunity to convince Peter to sort of uh, you know, come on board. And, and so it took me about three months. You know, it, it was definitely him kind of going down from managing about a billion dollars in revenue to managing about 10 million uh, in, uh, <laughs> in annual revenue. Uh, but uh, but he also saw the potential and, and loves building and 
And so fortunately it worked out and we have a lot of trust. So we're definitely fortunate on it. And then subsequently, so, so he came on board and, you know, we can talk about the transition. That's always a challenge. But basically since then, I try to spend my time kind of trying to see around the next corner, trying to understand where the market is headed. Sometimes it's orchestrating acquisitions. Sometimes it's, um, it's just sort of, you know, talking to customers that are forward thinkers and doing it. I host my own podcast in the security developer. I get to talk to smart sort of security leaders and sort of see what they're doing. A lot of like, we have a great CTO. We have a great chief product officer who are also kind of visionaries and founders and they're sort of building those out. And so increasingly my kind of time horizon, if you will, is ahead and my time is spent Actually, even a lot, I do, I do a fair bit of angel investing and, and, uh, and such. And, and I find to me, those are kind of my learning opportunities as well. I learn what's happening on the market, different ways people are doing things, new disruptive technologies, new approaches. And that's both interesting to me, but also helpful coming back into Sneak to basically feed the company an external perspective from the benefit of not needing to be as operational in the day-to-day. -day. So I support a lot of things, strategic decisions, you know, all sorts of like executive team activities, of course, M&A, key customers, key partners, a lot of my time spent on that. Uh, but also my, my official job, if you will, or what I think I'm the primarily doing is, is that sort of forward, forward-looking views. That's really interesting. I remember reading somewhere that in the you were the CTO at Blaze, obviously, and you were very focused on the tech side of things there. You had the co-founder who handled more of the CEO, go-to-market side of things. You came to Sneak and you'd written somewhere that you were on purpose looking for co-founders in Danny and Asaf that could bring more of the tech side of things so that you could focus more on being the CEO and learning how to do that and also being focused on go-to-market. How did that work out for you? What did you learn in the process of going from being the really technical focused CTO to being the really externally focused, completely different role, go-to-market, building up go-to-market and being the CEO running the company role? What did you learn in that transition? I learned a ton, you know, but I, I mean, first of all, just like a bit of a funny anecdote that at some point I was a product manager at you know, Watchfire acquired by IBM. And I was, you know, I, I spoke to this, uh, this guy I looked up to as a product leader and I told him, you know, hey, is product a good path to become a CTO? Like is being a product manager a good path to be a CTO? And he told me the best way to become a CTO is to found a company and call yourself a CTO. Uh, and so that's basically <laughs> what I did, uh, you know, with, uh, with Blaze is I found the company and I called myself a CTO. And in practice, I was fairly outward looking. So, you know, in Blaze, I did, you know, for about sort of six, seven months, I was kind of the nerd in his cave, you know, I was writing code, uh, building this up. I think even by the time, you know, Blaze got acquired by Akamai, we still probably a majority of my co of the code, you know, or like a good portion of the code, you know, was mine. I uh, reviewed a lot of code. But then, you know, the second half maybe of Blaze's life, I was very much like the outward facing CTO. I was mm. speaking, I was kind of doing a lot of public speaking. I was uh, engaging in the community. I was selling, but I was the tech side. By the time, so, and then, you know, Akamai acquired us and then I became a CTO for real at Akamai, you know, and I was sort of, you know, CTO of a $700 million, million dollar a year business and, you know, uh, learn how to sort of operate. And, um, and then by the time I, I decided to not found another company and run it, to me, it's all about learning. And so I, I've sort of seen maybe the big picture and I like the big picture. I like the holistic picture. And so. I, I kind of, I guess, decided to found a company and call myself a CEO. And I wanted to touch <laughs> all these different things, although I'm clearly a tech-leaning, product-leaning CEO. Bringing Danny and Asaf as co-founders is a little bit sort of uh, different. You know, first of all, I, I think startups are hard journeys. Even if you sort of kind of know what you're doing a little bit more, even if you're doing it a second or third time, you know, it's all about the roller coasters, a lot of highs and a lot of lows and key decisions. And I think doing it alone is just very, very hard. It's, it's lonely. It's, it's tough. And so I wanted co-founders. Um, secondly, I wanted to build a branch in Israel. I'm Israeli, but I live in London and I, I had sort of a relevant network in Israel, but I, I wasn't there uh, and I had a different network in, in London. And so I wanted someone I can trust and I can, that is my partner in, uh, in Israel. And through the grapevine, I heard of, you know, Danny's uh, availability or uh, inclination. I taught Danny in the army, you know, we sort of uh, crossed paths. So I knew him a bit. No way. And so I, uh, uh, I heard and I talked to him and he was about to embark on founding another thing with Asaf. And they were still early days kind of, you know, goofing around. I've already been a bit more established. I knew. I already had funding uh, lined up. I already had a contractor kind of working on it early, early, like a month or two, you know, nothing long and a more maybe established idea. 
And so I managed to convince them to, uh, to drop their thing and join me. And they've been amazing. And, and indeed, when you have, I think in general, when you have someone you really trust build an aspect of the business, then it frees you up to, to do something else. And, and I find that, you know, like having co-founders and having capable co-founders, you need to know what their competencies are. You know, Asaf is, is a kind of super strategic thinker, but also kind of a commando unit. Like you sort of, you know, when there's a problem, Asaf, of course, Asaf can solve it. Like, you know, I think he even said at some point that, you know, there isn't a problem that he's faced that he can't solve. It's like, and it's not arrogance. It's actually like a super humble guy. It's just that doing it. Danny is, is probably one of the top security researchers kind of in the world, I would say, you know, and sort of top tier and they're both culture and body. And so they, they help build a branch and with great hires that we've made and all of that. So, yeah, I think you want to have partners. And throughout the journey, I will also say that this view of like, is it someone that you trust that you can let go to is also super, super important as you build your team, as you build your exec team. You have to be at a level of trust that you can let go, that you feel like, you know, that person is, you know, you trust them to be doing. It doesn't mean you don't supervise, doesn't mean you don't scrutinize. You know, and of course, in some cases, you you have it wrong. But I think that's a that's a big deal. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think for me, it's about trying new things. And I guess I'm a I'm also a I'm a firm believer that if you're if you're comfortable, you're not growing. I guess Freud's sentence is there is no growth without pain. You know, I kind of like comfort a bit more, maybe. And so I like trying to put myself in uncomfortable sort of scenarios in which I have to learn, I have to grow, and uh, otherwise I get bored. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of that really resonated with me. I'll never forget. I always talked about this roller coaster thing with friends just from my last startup experience. And then we found out Stellate. And I remember the first week we shake hands. We're like, okay, we're going to co-found this company. We're going to go out and raise a pre-seed round. We talked to the first person who was a really important angel investor for us to bring on board because we knew that he would unlock other investors. And we had the call with him. He says on the call, he would love to invest. He would love to be a part of it. He'll do X amount and whatever. And we sort of get the first terms. It was a big deal for us. So after that call, we were like, open the champagne bottle, right? We are like, let's celebrate. And then... Five minutes afterwards, we had our first downtime. We had, we already had kind of like the private beta product running our first users on it. And literally five minutes later, our infrastructure crashed. Everything was down. And I just remember that feeling of that roller coaster. Just the second we co-found the company, it starts, right? It's like the roller coaster starts. It's the highest highs and the lowest lows right after another. And the other thing I've realized, and I'd actually be curious if you feel the same way, is that the roller coaster kind of the amplitude changes as the company grows, right? At the beginning, everything feels really high and low. And then as you get further along and you become more and more people to me, suddenly the amplitude start feeling way bigger and way high, way, way, the highs way higher and the lows way lower. It's still the same roller coaster. It's just the amplitudes feel way stronger to me now that the company's grown a little bit. I mean, it's interesting. It's a good question. I use the sort of the wavelength analogy as well. I find like, I don't know, maybe like up until a certain stage, it's true because at the beginning, it's just yourself. And you're having fun. And to an extent, if it sort of crashes and burns, you're, of course, you care, you deeply care, and you're very emotional about it. But you are, there hasn't been anything created yet that needs to be saved or, you know, you need to avoid losing. There's nothing there. So it's really all about the risk. And uh, I think at some point you start building something that is now like, okay, we need to make this work. Like it's, it seems like we've sort of hit something, but you're still in existential mode. Like it still feels like the wrong turn, the wrong move could kind of kill the company. And, and you're probably right, you know, like you're sort of like you're, you're in that fit. And I think so in that case is I think the stakes feel high. There's more people that depend on you, you know, for their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. I think actually as the company grows, I found that the roller coaster is still much more than you would get at any employment or any sort of other job. But, uh, but I actually find that it sort of tempers down because the company is a bit, mm. you know, off the existential mode. And decisions are just, they're longer. And so every single move that happens, you know, it has to be a bit more dramatic for it to really, really affect the company. A failed sale is not, you know, as dramatic to you. A failed, like if this was the biggest deal in the company's history and you're sort of failed or not, it would. But those are more unusual. And so so I think it does kind of temper it down. But I use, I, I do like that analogy because I think it reminds you that you can't have the highs without the lows. And so as you pick your lifestyle and as you do those, there are two sides of the same coin or the same kind of you know, wave. It's, it's basically the traits of an addictive uh, uh, behavior. Over time, we forget the lows. We remember the highs and you crave the highs. And so you, you kind of come back to it. And I think it's part of the reason that even successful founders go back and do it again and again. It's because... It's just, it feels like what you're doing matters and, uh, and is impactful. I find that to be very true. I think the same thing applies to a lot of also kind of 
celebrities or famous people. I, I don't really follow many of them, but particularly with Instagram and social media, it's like they, they present, you, you kind of present automatically the good side of yourself, right? Like you present everything that's going really well, but they have high highs for sure, but they equally have very low lows, right? And then you have people, you have events that remind people that actually this life that seems very glamorous also has the same low lows or even lower lows than yours. Um, yeah, yeah. And, it's, example, good. and it's, it's important when you, when you found it, with all the fact that like you're never going to be able, I think, to sort of you know found a company and run it without getting emotional about it, but it's really important from time to time to remind yourself and everybody kind of in the team that it's never as good or as bad as it seems. You know, it's it's, it's almost never as dramatic, whether as you know problem state or, or as a win. You know, you don't really need to temper people down when it's a win. So, uh, but if you do that a few times when you do it as a win, you get more credibility uh, when you do it when it's a it's a, it's a loss. I personally found that having sort of an outside perspective, having friends and family that aren't in, in the industry is really important because it, it feels very grounding to me to just have somebody, you know, my family, they're going to love me no matter what, right? They, they don't really care what happens to Stellate. They don't care what happens to the company. Of course, they care and they're excited for my success and they're sad for the lows, but they're going to love me no matter what, right? They're, they're going to be happy for me and sad for me no matter what. And so it, I found that to be very grounding, having that outside perspective and being like, yeah, this is bad. We still love you, right? And everything's going to be fine. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I do think something that's, you know, like as we talk about the challenges of sort of founder life, um, if, if you have, so I have two kids, you know, and, and you know, I've had a, a baby born three months before my first startup. And then, you know, my, my kids are now, wow. you know, in the sort of uh, low, low teens. And it's sometimes hard when you're sort of in a founder and you, you know, you come off a, a day of calls in which you're talking about whatever, raising millions of dollars or sort of, you know, deals of that caliber, or maybe the other side, like, you know, like laying off people or sort of firing an individual that's not working out. And then, you know, your, your son or daughter come along and they, they, they want to talk about some whatever silly thing that a teacher said or some sort of, you know, clearly over-dramatized sort of a fight that they've had with some sort of friend or something like that. And it's sometimes hard to adapt the, um, the sort of the scale, right? It's like, is this what you're bothering me? I'm dealing with these much more important, much bigger problems. And it's important to sort of remind yourself you know, that like that's the scope of their concerns and and it doesn't diminish you know their challenges the fact that you've dealt with something that at the world scale is greater and so if you want to be a good family member if you want to be a good father to doing it it's 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 an effort it's not easy i find it helpful to just have a forcing function of of a period of time in which you disconnect from work before the sort of the personal time I actually in that sense i lament the not having the commute back i work from home most of the time now and if I commuted back from the office, that was almost my like disconnect from work. And mm. first half was like, I finish a few things on the email on the phone, but then the sort of the second half was a bit more that, but I think it's just, it's important to, to try and put work aside. Definitely don't check your email while you're in a dinner or those. Cause that just sort of keeps reminding you of a different context, but it's not easy, but you know, at least for me, super, super important. And then you have to sort of put firm boundaries around it. Absolutely. What else have you learned about building a family next to building two companies? I, I hear what lessons, what's worked out well for you when you think about the fact that, you know, you're, you're a founder, you have a partner supporting you, you have the two kids that are relying on you. How have you worked out the dynamic that works well for you? You know, I think, first of all, I'd say to each his own, right? Like, you know, people have different preferences. For me, it was very important to define what is reasonable and what is unreasonable and be very careful not to make too many exceptions. So for instance, I, you know, I travel a lot, but I have learned through the years that for me the sort of the maximum pace is week on week off travel and not traveling over weekends and so it's at most five days that you've sort of been you know partially off you know left one day and back the other and then 10 days sort of at home right sort of nine or ten days at home and so it feels like you're mostly home versus mostly traveling and i've i've held to that no that's a lot if i do that literally every other week i travel i feel exhausted but in terms of like stretches, spring and fall, I really, really work hard not to break that, not to do back-to-back -back week trips. I will take the red eyes and all of that to come back and not lose the weekends. And I think that keeps me established and sort of, you know, so that, that it's easy to sort of set that rule. You just sort of work with that rule. And like once a year, maybe, you know, I break it, right? Maybe twice, but not more. And so that was important. Similarly, you know, I have, you know, my, um, you know, I, I live in London, the, market is clearly often heavy in the US. You have to work US hours. 
but you know i stop work you know when i was in the office it'll be sort of 6 30 7 p.m you know at no like it's blocked off you head home you have dinner with the kids and all that and oftentimes at 9 p.m i was back at the computer but that window was blocked off so i think having those lines and then the last thing i would say is is taking vacations i think taking vacations is such an underrated uh you know kind of a behavior especially by american founders maybe like european founders know how to sort of uh take vacation a bit more clearly there's the aspect of like keeping yourself sane and, and energized and that comes back to the company and sort of helps you be better but also i think one of the best ways when you scale up to kind of spot and understand how your team is dealing and to work yourself out of a job a bit to let go is actually to take a, at least a week, if not a two week vacation. And leading up to the vacation, you hand off a bunch of things to people. So like, okay, while I'm away, you take care of X. And then when you come back, you don't pick it up. You don't, you don't, you don't take it back on. You sort of leave it a bit, you know, in those, you see what has exploded and what hasn't. And I think it really sort of frees you up. It shows you that the company can survive without you. It shows you where it can't, you know, so, so you build that and it empowers people to, uh, to lead, you know, to be, to be in charge. <laughs> you know, when, uh, whenever I talk to a founder who sort of says, Hey, you know, the company's scale, but I'm swamped. I can't do, you know, I can't get to everything. I can do it. They're like, maybe sort of feels, you know, opposite a bit. My, my advice would be take a vacation, <laughs> take a vacation. You're going to have, like, you have to let go and let other people do it. I mean, yes, a few things, a few balls are going to fall to the ground, but this week doesn't matter. You know, it really is like, don't take the last week of Q4 on vacation, like be like, well, maybe that's Christmas, but you know, like maybe be a bit smart about which week you're taking, but, uh, take a vacation, try to disconnect and, um, I think good things happen. That's a beautiful call out. I want to drill into something that you mentioned earlier, where I, I believe it, it sounds like that was a particularly intense period, which is from the time frame from when you kind of hit the inflection point, what maybe is called in the startup ecosystem product market fit, to the time that you sort of two years later, it sounded like handed over to Peter to take over as the CEO and you sort of step more into your passion role again of really figuring out the product and the strategy and thinking around the next corner. What was that inflection point? I, I remember reading online somewhere that um, at the time you maybe had 100K in ARR or something like that. Uh, I remember that being mentioned somewhere. Then you mentioned, you know, by the time Peter took over two, two and a half years later, you were at $10 million in ARR, which is obviously an incredible growth, an incredible jump. What was that inflection point? What actually happened? What changed compared to the two years prior to that, where you were kind of busy just building the initial version? What happened? What was that inflection point? And what did that feel like once that hit? So, you know, just for context, not everybody might not sort of know what, uh, what Snick is. So like Snick builds a developer security products or sort of a platform. So fundamentally, the belief was developers have to build secure software. We have to embed security in software development because nothing else scales, especially in the sort of context of, of continuous development or sort of agile DevOps world in which, you know, it's all about independent teams being able to kind of own what they build and like build it, run it, own it, you know, do that iteratively again and again. And so you just, you can't secure that from the outside. And our kind of uh, claim to fame, right? Sort of our strongest sort of thesis here has been that if you want to get developers to embrace security, you have to build a developer tooling company, not a security company. So you need to build a company that does what we've called the first security, which is think about if I'm a developer and I want to write secure code, what is it that is best for me? And figure all the rest out after. And so the company was very much built with that sort of tunnel vision. We're a developer tooling company. We will model after the, you know, what we think were the best dev tooling companies of the world. We will, you know, anywhere from the, the brand and the logo to the sort of the go-to-market approach with sort of the product-led growth and sort of bottom-up and freemium tier to, of course, the product UX itself to, you know, everything about us was focused on winning over developers. And we, we've succeeded in winning over developers fairly early on. You know, we launched like a crappy little beta a month or, you know, after sort of Danny and Seth joined, you know, sort of a few months into the company. It was like terrible, but it was sort of narrow and well, good UX, you know, and, and, uh, and evolved and it was beta. We didn't ask anybody to pay it. We built it up and then we launched a GA and we've, you know, we, for a developer tooling company, we were pretty, pretty mediocre in terms of number of users, but for a security company, we were like stellar. Nobody, you know, no security company had that. So we got product user fit pretty early on. And frankly, even there, we sort of were unhappy because, you know, we became a part of like Heavybit, which is a, you know, sort of a, a dev tools oriented accelerator at the time, later on sort of investor. 
and uh, and building it up and comparing to everybody around us, like we're pretty bad, you know, in terms of we only got like thousands of kind of registrations, you know, or like we had 10,000 users or so forth, while, you know, tools around us were sort of you know, orders of magnitude more. But we got developers to embrace security. And then we realized that the people signing the checks were security teams. And in small companies, that's fine. You know, sometimes sort of dev teams signed it. But in, you know, this, the, the company's budget around securing, keeping the organization secure is captured in the security budget. That's what the company is paying to keep the company secure. And uh, we didn't have things that security people needed. Notably... There's a whole element of depth versus breadth, which I've spoken about in a bunch of these forums, but I think it's worth repeating, which is developers like depth. If you're, if you're a developer and you're coding in JavaScript, then you really don't care if I support, you know, PHP or Go, you know, it doesn't matter. You work and it's not, you're not narrow-minded. You're not sort of, you know, it's not because you're, you know, you, uh, you aren't thinking big enough. It's just because it doesn't affect your day-to-day life. And so dev tools, best practices build a narrow a deep product and win over that community and the other ecosystems will wait if you ever get to them. Security doesn't work that way. Security needs breadth. You know, there's already a fragmented threat landscape. There's already a million tools. There's a very real problem of like fragmentation of tools and security. They can't go off and multiply open source security governance, you know, say, you know, by every director of engineering picking their tool. So they need breadth. They need stack support. They need this. So they, they need a solution that supports 80, 90% of their applications so that they can tackle a threat, ideally 100. That's a tough combo. You know, we built a dev first product. We built a depth first product. We stayed in JavaScript land for a very long time and won over and became a a, a big part of the fabric of Node.js and sort of JavaScript uh, world for it. And practically no company was Node.js only, you know, it's like, you know, of any, of any notable size. And so we had to expand. So the key thing that really tipped the balance and clearly I'm saying these learnings in hindsight is basically going, not just having product user fit, but having product buyer fit and being able to satisfy the needs of the buyer to, in our context, a bunch of capabilities that were missing, but also for security governance and such, but also sufficient breadth. And then once we cracked that, the kind of the tailwind of the developer adoption that we had, that, you know, to this date, as compared to whatever the Netlifys of the world or the, uh, is still way smaller, but for a security company is very kind of, you know, at the top by a large margin, that really is the, the fuel that, uh, that, uh, that drove our growth. Um, I'd say that every time you're doing a product-led growth motion in which the user and the buyer are different, you have to think about that. And every time you're investing in a company that is of that nature, then you need to remember that revenue is a second-order uh, variable. You know, you have to you know build a great product, then get a great user base, if, especially if you're sort of taking a freemium approach, which is its own topic. And then subsequently, you need to get that product actually uh, sold. So I think we're familiar with that in open source land, open open core products. So we're familiar with that model, but it's also true for SaaS freemium services. That's a beautiful overview. Essentially, you you were very focused on the users initially, solved the big problem for them, got great adoption for the security space. I also like your call out about you being in Heavybit. I I have this visual of you sitting in this room in Heavybit, which I'm sure is totally wrong, but with all these great companies around you that are building developer tools, and all of them are talking about these hundreds of thousands, millions of developers that are using their tools, and you're sitting there, and you're like, well, we've got a few thousand, right? And you were comparing yourself kind of in the in the in a different market where they were really focused on developer tooling and you were really focused on the security market. And so really comparing yourself in the market that you're in instead of compared to a market that you're not even competing right, with companies that do something completely different. I, I love yeah. that call out. It's important to sort of set a high standards and we were modeling after the dev tooling companies of the world. So we, we measured ourselves against that. Didn't, you know, didn't sort of help boost the self-esteem, but at the end of the day, <laughs> it pulled us up because we weren't happy instead of like patting ourselves on the shoulder and sort of saying, you know, hey, this is great. Look, we have so many more users than other sort of security companies was like, what are we doing wrong? You know, sort of not getting, you know, these different, and, you know, I'm sure that without that attitude, we wouldn't have sort of achieved eventually because it did like that learning and that path and that kind of constant pestering of these other companies. I was like, why? Like, how are people adopting so much, you know, of it? And, you know, at the end of the day, security is not the most, like for developers, most developers, vast, 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 vast majority of developers, security is not the primary thing that they are thinking about. They're thinking about building functionality and that functionality needs to be secure. So naturally tools that help them build functionality would basically be at the top of the food chain in terms of their choice. Fortunately for us, 
the way the ability to monetize a security <laughs> solution is a fair bit better than most dev tools. And this need for breadth from security people opens an opportunity, makes it harder maybe to sort of make the leap from a dev team to security. But then if you succeed to that, it sort of naturally opens the door to broader and bigger deals. And so, you know, and hence basically fueling that. Um, yeah, and you had that, you know, we basically went from 100K in August, I think, of that year to about 600K at the end of that year to Jesus. four and a half million at the end of the year after to shy of 20 million at the end of the year after. So the multiples started kind of growing. You know, we're still on a more than 2x a year rate right now, but you know, now into like, yeah, you know, into the, the, the nine figures. But um, yeah, there were definitely near-death uh, moments uh, along the journey. <laughs> what, what did that feel like? I can only imagine, like, you've been going for two years, you've got 100K around, and suddenly it clicks, like you hit that inflection point, you find the buyer, you build the things that they're looking for, you understand how to talk to them. What did that inflection point feel like for you as a CEO? I can only imagine how that must have completely changed your life again from the initial two years of trying to figure out what to do, and then suddenly you everything explodes. Today, I look at that and I sort of, you know, mark that point as the inflection point. I think at the moment you're just running around as like a headless chicken. You keep <laughs> fighting the, the sort of the fights. You have these deals. You kind of notice that more came in, but, you know, and, and you're happy and you celebrate each one of them. But there's always the ones that you've lost in the process. And, you know, they say the sort of companies are built in the image of the founders. So maybe I'm to blame for this, but Snake is, is not a very, it's a very caring surrounding, but it's not a very self-congratulatory sort of culture. Like we, we try to sort of keep the humility. We spend most of our time, we care and we take a moment to sort of appreciate what we've built, but we do think a lot about the problems and how do we do better and in a non-blaming fashion, but in, in always kind of a, a drive to, to do it. So I don't remember that moment as a, Hey, we cracked it. Yay. I remember it as, you know, there's basically been a constant even till today, you know, there's a constant set of problems to solve. And uh, and when a problem is, is about to be solved and it's already obvious that it's on a good path, then I'm probably not the one dealing with it anymore. Uh, and so I have moved on to another problem that is not yet solved. I don't mean to sort of say this in a complaining fashion. It's a choice and it comes back to growth. You know, if I like on a certain frequency to take a moment and sort of, you know, appreciate the success and I think we've managed to sort of break through to developers and get them to embrace security. I definitely like to celebrate the successes of people on the team when they do something amazing, which happens often. But otherwise, you know, I, I think it's more interesting to look at things that are unsolved yet and try to solve them. Absolutely. I think one of the things that you mentioned just earlier that it sounded like you solved pretty early and that was pretty important was executive hiring and bringing on a great leadership team. How do you think about hiring a leadership team for a company? When did you start doing that? And what have you learned that worked? And what have you learned that really didn't work? In which cases were you like, nah, this didn't work out. Gotta take our lessons, gotta take our learnings and, and try again. Yeah, it's a really tough process because bringing leaders, you have to kind of have this combo of letting go and yet sort of staying involved. And so in the early days, I think a lot of what you need is execution, but you don't need that many people doing strategy. I mean, the founders generally have come with a vision. And so they need strong execution ability and they need agility and a bias for delivery for shipping it. You know, one of SNCC's core values, ship it, you know, and it's like fine with delivery. We don't know. We don't get in a cave and sort of, you know, come out a year later with some sort of wonder. We, we ship something. And we iterate. And so I think at the beginning, to me, that's most important. It's sort of like it's just the execution ability to drive people that pull up their sleeves and get the job done. And you can really get, you know, problematic if you get something too bad. And, and frankly, you don't know enough to strategize. You know, you have a vision and then you need to hustle. As time goes on, you need to free yourself up to be able to focus as the CEO, you know, at least, you know, to focus on other things. And so once something has enough foundation behind it, then you need to bring someone uh, to do it. So for instance, our first head of product, she was super, super capable, intentionally hired someone from the UX world because I, I wanted developer UX to sort of be very good. And in practice, I was the head of product, you know, in terms of like understanding what needs to be built. At some point, not that deep into it, maybe a year and a half in, you know, or two years in, 
two, I guess it was about two years in, that didn't work anymore, you know, because I, it, it bogged me down. If I wasn't there, either the wrong decisions or no decisions were made. And really, I needed a new head of product that was more able to, to sort of understand the product and build it and work with customers. And today, our sort of chief product officer is different. Like, you know, that sort of a CPO on air is amazing, and he's kind of brought us a lot of time. The one today is really one that's much more about building a large sort of scale product organization and working through others and a lot more about that team building and that strategy and less about the hands-on. So similar journeys have happened in different paths, you know, in the, um, in the sales leadership, hire a first sales leader. Over time, I would say, so I'd say at the beginning, you want hustlers, you want executors. Later on, you have to be ones that you can let go to. And then my mental model for assessing your sort of leadership team is that I think an executive, there's a difference between a head of function and an executive. A head of function does their job. They need to be very good at sort of sales or at, as good at like engineering or whatever it is. An executive is someone that you lead the company with. You know, the executive team should be leading the company. And so they should care about more than just their domain. And they should think about more than just today and tomorrow, but sort of further out. And I like to say that an executive needs to be good at looking downwards, sideways and forward. And so downwards, they need to be able to build an organization, hire great people, look at the organization, how it structures. They have to execute. They have to execute for today. Sideways is they need to collaborate with the other team members. They need to together lead the company. And the ones that are not good at that, there are some amazing managers that are not good collaborators. They can represent their team. They can, that's a challenge. That's a problem. And forward is because you have to, like, especially when you're in hyper growth, when you're in a place in which this already works, you always have to be a step ahead you like as the leader the team needs to be building stuff and the executive has to be looking ahead has to be doing things about what they need for tomorrow otherwise you're not going to keep up and that's why you know sad but true but i think and I've, I'm, I'm actually this is maybe more a learning i have from peter because i've actually been pretty lousy at this but when you have a leader that starts falling back and the company is in hyper growth mode and you always like you look at the team and you see who's who's behind there's always someone who's not if they've fallen behind and there wasn't anything like, you know, they probably like, they have some challenges on it and the company continues to grow. They need to go at double the speed, you know, right. They need to be able to not only keep up and kind of catch up, but they need to also then continue to advance. So they're not falling behind again. So you really have a pretty tall ask. And the reality is that when someone is falling behind as an executive, it is, and the company is in hyper growth mode, it's very unlikely that they can catch up. And it's, it's sad because these are amazing people and they're very good. And if you replace an executive before they failed, you're that much more likely to keep the person. And I give Peter great credit. He's done an amazing job there. And the majority of kind of previous heads that we've had are still in the company and they're doing great and they've taken a slice of it and they're learning from the new leader. And if you do, like I've done a couple of times before Peter did, you know, and wait for something to be a clear failure above and beyond the damage, it's very, very hard to retain that person after. Like basically once they've sort of clearly failed in the company, you know, they've kind of lost the, the opportunity, like the team, they've lost the credibility with sort of the other uh, team members. And so you're not really doing anyone a favor and you need to be like a slightly harsher space to, uh, to be in, but the company needs it again, especially when you're growing fast, when you're growing slow, you have the leisure, maybe the sort of the luxury of allowing people to kind of catch up and then build up. But yeah, if you're doubling year on year, there's just no time for that. I remember Mitchell Hashimoto somewhere mentioned something similar where he said one of the things he's the most proud of on, on the journey of HashiCorp is that they replaced the entire executive team pretty much, I think, three or four times on their journey to the $100 million ARR. Yeah, we've done it about three times. And there was the, uh, the last man standing, you know, that chief product officer. And I think, yeah, I think we've had three, two or three heads of marketing. We have three heads of sales. That's, by the way, maybe one more tactic on it. People are so enamored with the CXO titles. And when I see like a 20 person startup hiring a head of sales and calling them a CRO, I don't know, like, I feel like it's just such a, like, you're, you're not a chief revenue officer yet. You're sort of, you know, you're a head of sales. So to me, when you're hiring a first head of, ideally you call them that head of, you don't know what their title is. You're sort of a head of, I think if you really, really, really have to, you call them a VP and you hold their, but hiring, giving someone an SVP or a CXO title as a hire before there's, you know, a whole hierarchy of sort of uh, VPs and, and SVPs under them is a mistake because once you hire someone as a CRO, it's unlikely that that person, if you're successful, is the right CRO for you in three years time. 
you can't hire anybody above them. Like you need to demote them. While if you hire them as a VP, they can be the head of and they can stay a VP while you hire an SVP above them. And then they can stay an SVP when you hire a CXO above them. And so you're just setting yourself up for a failure. So people take the easy route now and um, they, they pay for it after. <laughs> That's a great tactic to be aware of. So for you, is the is the head of more of the like hustler that you mentioned that you need initially that's really trying to do the thing. So head of sales doing the sales. And then later more on the executive side, like VP, SVP, CXOs, they're more on the, like you mentioned, leading the company with you instead of actually tactically executing sort of on the thing itself. No, I, I separate the two. I mean, I, I would say that the head of is the head of the function and it's okay for them to be an executive in the company as well. I'm just sort of saying that the choice of title, it... it I think you can have a head of that manages 100 people. That's still okay. There's no real problem with that being a head of. You get to the VP really from external pressures because a candidate wants a VP title because they were a VP before. It's really about that. It's about sort of that type of ego. And so you want to try and sort of pierce through and prevent that. It's true that it's just more likely that a head of is earlier. But again, if you're a head of sales and you have two salespeople under you, then you should be hands-on, you know, super in the weeds, even if your title is CRO. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's like independent of one or the other. I just kind of caution the sort of the founders from hiring, from giving people inflated titles prematurely. Makes a ton of sense. Let me, let me jump back to the go-to-market topic for just one more second. It's still like we're currently building graphical rate limiting. And one of the things that really resonated that you said in one of your interviews was that one of the things you had to figure out is that security is kind of, invisible, I think you said, right? Like security doesn't hurt until it hurts really badly or that it's kind of too late. How do you sell something that's invisible? How do you sell something where essentially when it happens, it's already too late? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. There's no real kind of a single answer. So generally there are three ways in which you can provide value to your customers, to or at least to business customers. You can help them sell more. So you can kind of increase the top line. You can help them spend less. So you can help them be more efficient and more effective. Productivity falls into that. Or you can help them reduce risk. Those are really the only three ways in which you can provide value. Security clearly falls under the sort of the risk reduction piece. And in that sense, you know, there is, you know, there's a whole industries around that risk reduction. And it's real value. It's not bogus. It is real value. But unfortunately, especially when you're talking about ma like major risk, backup kind of restoration, all sorts of like insurance and reinsurance. Unfortunately, you know, there's no great barometers and it's very subjective. And so you end up sort of relying on case studies. You're trying to kind of quantify and you put a calculator, you put, you know, you, you create a bogus ROI calculator, which it's not about the numbers. It's about the variables. You know, and pe people are, have this legitimately, you know, I'm like, especially for technical, you have this aversion to these kind of ROI calculators. Like, do I really know how much does a breach cost? Do I really know what the percentage reduction that using sneak would, you know, have to reducing the, uh, I mean, these are not facts, they're opinions. And yet, like it or not, the buyer needs to justify spending X to purchase the tool. And they need to show that X is less than the Y, <laughs> you know, that is the number or the, the cost or sort of the implication of not purchasing this product. And so whether you like it or not, that exercise has to happen. And you can either hope that the customer figures it out correctly, or you can help them. And so in, in the context of security and anything that is about risk reduction, you put together the simple equation. So, well, what is this risk? Well, the risk is a risk of a breach. You know, what is the, the cost? Like you put the number, like you put, like, here's a bunch of benchmarks around those numbers, but you know, you pick a number. How much do you think snake reduces the cost, the, the chance of a, of, a, of a breach? And so you put that together. So that's one approach. The second thing that we do at Snake is really focus on developer productivity. So like we help in two ways. We help you reduce risk, but we also help you reduce cost by basically allowing the same developers to produce secure software with less effort, you know, with less security people, maybe sometimes you know, identifying things earlier in the process or less rework. And so over there, you, again, you kind of build up those calculators. So I think just defining the variables that contribute to the value you provide to the customer is something you should be able to always do above and beyond the sort of the finicking on the exact number that you should put there. In which case, you, you know, if when you're selling, you're sort of guiding the customer towards, you know, certain numbers. But typically, you know, if, if your product is really good, then the that it's not a fair fight, right? Like it's a 10x, 100x return to it. And at that point, 
people first need to want to use your product. They first need to want to buy your product. Now you're just helping them with the justification and the cost process. And I like to tell customers that if we align on the value that you're getting from this product, then we should be able to align on the price. And if we're not aligning on the price, if we can do it, it's because we're not aligned on the value. So let's talk about what is the value that we are providing you. Maybe it's a bit purist. It doesn't always work. I think it's true. It's a, it's a genuine belief that I have. It's not a sales technique. It's a, it's a genuine. If you sell it for less than the value that, that you provide, you know, or for something disproportionate to it, then you, know, you haven't helped the business. The customer eventually has a, a product from a company that doesn't sort of survive, right? Or sort of doesn't work. And that's not good either. By the way, there's a very, very similar analogy to the uh, total addressable market. When you do fan- fundraising, it's the same thing, you know, I'm sure every technical founder rolls their eyes. It's like, well, what's the TAM? You know, what's the sort of the total addressable market? Of course, because it's a it's an unanswerable question. Markets change, you know, sort of making market. But like it or not, that investor needs to put some math in place somewhere that includes the total of it. So either you hope that they got it right somehow, you know, that they are uh, creative enough and all that, or you handhold them and say, well, these are the variables. We think there are this many developers in the world. You know, we think all of them need to build secure software. And, you know, at this point we have data to sort of show how much they sort of spend, you know, on the different product and all that. But like, you know, we think they'll spend this much. And so this is the TAM. And we think both of those numbers are growing, the value of security and the uh, and the number of developers. And so, again, you can argue whether the number of developers is <laughs> 20, 30, 40 million, you know, if it's growing at that percent or that percent. But we've established the variables and we've established that number is big. And especially in the early stage, now you kind of go on from there. And even now in the late stage, you know, we sort of show those and in multiples of sort of, sorry, well, we have six products now or five products, you know, here's how, how much people spend, you know, on a given product, you know, per developer, here's our penetration rate with different customers, here's the, and you do the different parts. I think that's a beautiful way to think about it in both the sales and the sort of funding perspective. It's like, what are the objections and what are the justifications that they're going to have to make to their people? And how can I help them guide them along on that journey, right? Essentially, just helping them buy something that they want to buy anyway, right? They have some reason why they want to buy your product, ideally. Otherwise, why would they be talking to you? You're just helping them along the way. I have some pretty firm opinions around messaging. And I think people, in my opinion, mistake messaging as marketing. And I think messaging is definition. And a lot of these things are definition. I think when you define your product's messaging, assuming you're not trying to kind of bullshit the customer, you know, assuming you're not trying to sort of, you know, sell the bag, whatever it is, you know, a cat in the bag, then, then really like messaging defines the actual value proposition, the actual problem that you are solving, the actual differentiation that you have. And in turn, because you understand that better, now that should come back and help you guide the product that you're building. Like when you're building something, says, so well, does that help? these problems? Does that help these differentiators? Are these things that we're working on truly supportive? And I find so many, so many, so many founders, they lead with here, we have a platform that does X, Y, Z. And, you know, I guess my answer to that is like, nobody cares about your product. Like nobody cares about your product. What they care about is the problem that you are solving for them. And you need to take the time and it's this exercise and everybody's like, yeah, I'm not actually going to do the exercise. No, no, do the exercise of sitting down and saying, you know, what are the pains and the problems that like, why do people come? There's this exercise called power statement. I might've shared with you, Max, and uh, in the different, which says it starts from, it starts as a sales technique, but I like it as a product definition. It says, well, developers go to sneak because they're afraid of dependencies and they've had cases where those broke because they hate it when the security team sort of send them something to, to rework later on because, you know, they take pride in their work and they want to build secure software. It's like, okay, security people go to turn to sneak because their developers pull open source left, right, and center because they can't keep up with it. So these are the pains. And then you write a little blurb, like a little, like whatever, not a blurb, like two sentences about what your platform does. And then you write your differentiations, you know, like why, what is differentiate? And your, your kind of blurb should be a mix. It's called a power statement. And your blurb should be a combination of like these needs and then a short snippet about what your platform does and then your differentiation. And if there isn't cohesion between the differentiations and the problems that you're solving, you have a product problem. It's not a messaging problem. It's a product. You're not building the right product or you're not mm. understanding the right problems. And uh, anyways, a bit of a, I went on a bit of a rant here, you know, but it's, it, to me, it's also important for pricing. It's also important for, for the sort of ROI calculations. 
it boils down to understanding the value that you're providing to a customer, the value, like why you exist and how you help. And that understanding helps you do it better. And so these things are, are connected. Sorry for the preaching. Uh... <laughs> no, this was, this was fascinating. That, that, that makes so much sense to me. Essentially, the messaging is like the formulation of the product that you have, but that includes the pains that customers have, the differentiation that you have. And if those don't work, then yes, you can change the messaging, but they're still not going to work because your product is overall, right? Like you've, you've, you've made a mistake on the product side of things and really needs to be changed there. You can't tack on the messaging later and make it work if the product doesn't work, which makes total sense to me. So, so I think this simplification, you know, this sort of messaging, these distillings, you know, they help you do something better. And maybe I'll kind of add one more comment. I think we're kind of going a bit long here, but I perceive myself as a person that can hold a lot of complexity in my head. You know, I'm a techie, I'm sort of, and I think there's probably a lot of people sort of definitely on the tech side, you know, that sort of feel the same. And I had this conversation with um, one of the key people, you know, our labs team, who is brilliant, brilliant guy. And we're talking about messaging and he had some comment about something along the lines of dumbing it down, you know, like in, in context of explaining it. And I guess my, my so I, I sort of shared this view. We had this great conversation. What came out of it is, say you can hold complexity in your head. Fine, you can hold it maybe more than others, but that's still limited. You know, it's still, there's only so much that you can hold any of us. You know, there is no infinite capacity to do it. When you sit down and you understand a complicated topic and you spend the time, and oftentimes a, a presentation to someone else is a, is a forcing function to do so, to reduce it to the primary, to distill it to the primary bits. They're not comprehensive, they're not fully accurate, but they are directionally accurate. Now you have those bits in your head as well. And what you can do is you can zoom out from them and you can build on top of them. So you can alleviate the complexity for a bit. And sure, you can double click past those when necessary and maybe others cannot, but at the time you don't do it. And that is the way that you can think big. Like if you can't do that, if you can't, that's how society is built. We need these paradigms. And so going through these exercises, messaging, internal definitions, internal presentation is about taking the time to truly understand the first principles, sort of the core elements of why you are doing this. Why is something working? Why is something important? And if you do that well, you have firm foundations. You can take any time you want, you know, like it's a startup, you need to move fast. But it's a worthwhile investment and you need to catch yourself if you find yourself saying you're doing it for others. You know, you're doing it to better understand. When you better understand from there, it's just marketing. From there, it's like, fine, phrase it nicely, find the right case study, find the right, fine. But the, sort of the core messaging, that's the definition. And it helps you sort of think big about the next product, about the next hire, the job description. You know, it's like job descriptions are a great example of that. It's like, well, we need just great people. It's like. Take the time to sit down and think, what does that mean to you? That's a beautiful call out. Guy, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Before I let you go, is there anything that you want to plug? Anything people should look at? Where can they follow you? Where they can? Where can they follow Sneak? What should they check out if they're interested in learning more? Sure, yeah. I think we kind of touched on a bunch of these things. I mean, clearly you should be using Sneak, you know, whether it's a company <laughs> or a developer. I hope that's a foregone conclusion. My sentence in sort of Sneak context is, you know, for, uh, for older companies, although I doubt those are many of the sort of the uh, the founders over here is that, you know, you need to think about products that kind of help you get to where you want to be. You know, they help you. You don't want to replace products every couple of years. And so you want sort of products that are forward leaning. I'd like to think Snake is one of those. Yeah, other call-outs. I mean, I'm, I'm hosting, if you're interested in security and development, you can uh, hear a little bit of me and a lot of my guests on the Secure Developer podcast on all the different channels. Yeah, and I think other than that, I'm, uh, I've kind of, gone on to ramble on LinkedIn a bit more than sort of the Twitters of the world these days. But uh, but yeah, so I guess you can follow me there. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. This was fascinating. I hope we get to do this again sometime and, and good luck in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.